Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. The word of the Lord. This morning we are continuing our study in the um, Ten Commandments. And so we're to the Eighth Commandment this morning, do not steal. And every week that what we've seen and what we've said as we look at these commandments, as they act as a map for our life, they show us the heart of God. So God who brought his people out of bondage and out of slavery and said, you are now mine. He gives them his law, and his law was not something that they could keep so that they would earn his love, so that they would merit his favor, but instead his law was a picture of what goodness looked like. But as they looked at the law, something else happens, and this is what we've seen in our own lives probably probably in the last few weeks, is that it's like a mirror. And as we look into the law, what we find is that over and over again, there are layers and levels to our own guilt that are deeper than we may have first understood. And so the law does that intentionally so that it might bring you to Jesus. So the more that we discover the ways in which we are are actually more sinful than we thought, the more we have reason to celebrate and rejoice the fact that Jesus' forgiveness, the depth of it, goes way further than we first imagined. And so this morning, before we think about this Eighth Commandment, let me, let me pause and pray and ask God that he would help us. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we thank you that it is utterly and absolutely true. That we listen to many other voices, we listen to other things in our lives, we are, are eager and longing for true words that give us comfort, and here we sit before you this morning, we sit at your feet and we hear your words, and they are true, and they are given to us this morning in love. So we we ask that by your spirit that you would help us to see ourselves more clearly, even as we see and understand you more clearly. We pray that even as we might find things about ourselves that are are convicting, that what we would know is that repentance um, for us is something that leads to life. And it's a daily occurrence for us that we see more and more and we take it to Jesus. And um, what we find is that he loves to give us grace and forgiveness. And so may those things happen this morning again for us um, through your spirit's work and to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a a story. It's a Sunday school story, so it's a little bit corny. Um, And so just bear with me for a minute, because like all stories that we tell during sermons, it has a point. Um, This Sunday school story, there was a a teacher who was teaching a group of uh, 10-year-olds, and he was kind of telling them a lesson about missionaries. There were certain missionaries in the church that they supported, and so he was telling them about these missionaries and how the church helps to send these missionaries into other lands all over the world and tell them about Jesus. And so the kids are tracking with them, and they think that this is pretty fascinating. And so he's kind of trying to drive home the point that part of the role of those who are here is that we support those who are sent. And so he asked this group, you know, if you had, what if you had a million dollars? Would you give it to those missionaries? 
And they're like, yes! And so then he's like, well, what if you had, what if you had $1,000? Would you give it to the missionaries? And they're like, yes! He's like, what if you had $100? Would you give it to the missionaries to support the missionaries? Yes! What if you just had $1? Would you, would you give it to the missionaries? And they're all like, yes! Except for this one kid. And he looks over and he sees that kid kind of has his hand down in his pocket. And he says, well, you, were so, you wanted to give a million dollars. Why wouldn't you want to give one dollar? And he's like, well, I actually have one dollar. You know, when, when Jesus stands on this earth, in the flesh, when he humbles himself and he comes down and he, he opens his mouth to teach those who had gathered around him, and he looks into their eyes, and what Jesus knows is that they are terrified. They are utterly afraid about what tomorrow is going to bring. They're afraid about what is going to happen in their lives. They're afraid about even what it means that they are now related to him, what that means for their lives. He knows that what is, what is full in our hearts is fear. And so Jesus looks at them, and he knows that one of the, the easiest things for us to turn to in the midst of fear, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of, the, of trying to control what tomorrow is going to look like, the easiest thing for us to turn to is money. Because it seems to be the case that if I have enough in the bank, then I don't have to worry about tomorrow. That, that I can be like the man in the parable that we looked at last fall who simply builds bigger barns and bigger barns, and he says, now I can relax and now I can eat and drink and be merry because finally I have enough where I don't have to worry anymore. And God speaks to that man and he says, you are a fool because I could take that away in an instant. And so Jesus looks at his people and he says, do not store up for yourselves treasure here on earth because moth and rust can, can decay it and destroy it and thieves can break in and steal it in a heartbeat and what you think is actually control you really don't have any control over that it can be taken away in an instant but instead lay up for yourselves treasure in, her in, in heaven where moth and rust do not come in and destroy, where thieves can never break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what Jesus is telling his followers and what he's telling us this morning is that what I have for you is true treasure. What I have for you is, is what you are actually longing for more than anything, and nobody can take it away from you because it. I guard it for you in heaven. And it is imperishable. And you can't mess it up, and you can't defile it, and thieves cannot break in and steal it, because this is the gift, this is the inheritance that I have for you, and I'm giving it to you. And Jesus is saying, I just simply want you to believe it and to trust in that. You know, in the end, I think that what this commandment, do not steal, is really asking us is one of the same questions that every single commandment has asked us so far. And that question is this, what is it that you trust? Where is your faith rest?
they all flow out of that first commandment, don't they? Because in that first commandment, we're, we're told that we should have no other gods before us. And what we know in our own lives is when we trust in anything other than the true maker and the creator of the heavens and earth, the, the natural result of our idolatry is anxiety. When I trust in something that can't actually provide what it says it can provide, I am continually anxious. I'm continually fearful. I'm continually thinking, how can I keep my bank account where I need it so that I don't have to worry anymore? But all I'm doing is worrying about keeping it where it needs to be so that I don't have to worry anymore. And it's a cycle that I can't stop. Where, Jesus is asking us this morning, where does your faith rest? If it's actually true, if you agree with the statement this morning that God is sovereign over all things, like we like to say, and like we truly believe, that God has so, that his, his rule extends to every molecule in the universe, and you now belong to him eternally, forever, and nothing can change that because it is part of the finished work of Jesus that has secured it. The test is here. Are you now a generous person? Are you now somebody who has been given the opposite because you've been given the opposite of what you deserve? Is the result that you are somebody who is generous? Do we really believe that our tre treasure is in heaven and it can't be taken away? Because at the end of the day, Scripture only leaves us two options when it comes to money. We can be generous or we can be thieves. We can be generous or we can be thieves, and there's really no in-between. And so this morning, I want to talk for a few minutes about the dignity that comes with God deciding to make us stewards of his riches. And then I want to think about for a minute the ways in which um, we, we do steal or we're tempted to steal. And then I want us to see how Jesus is actually calling us as a redeemed people uh, to radical generosity that looks very different than what we see all around us every day. And so let's talk a minute about the dignity uh, of stewardship, because I think that one of the things we could be led to, we could be led to this conclusion if we read through the Bible that we could maybe be scared about some of the things that Jesus says about money and possessions, and we might draw the conclusion that, well, money and possessions are bad things. And some Christians in, in history have come to that conclusion, and they've tried to sort of take a vow of poverty and get rid of everything that they own and not have any possessions. But I think that Scripture is actually telling us the opposite of that. The Scripture is actually telling us that God gives you things, and he gives you gifts, and he gives you money, and he gives you possessions because he actually wants you to be a steward of those things that he actually wants you to do something with those things. So if it's not, I mean, the logic follows, if it's not okay to steal, then it, the implication is that personal ownership must be a gift that is given by God. It must be a gift that's given by God, that part of our dignity as human beings lies in this concept that we can own things, that God has seen fit to give human beings these little portions of creation so that we might actually steward those things. It's part of what being made in the image of God entails. That we're made in his image, and he is a God who is 
um, creative. He is the God who takes something and makes more out of it. And he wants us to do that as well. In fact, the, the starting point for understanding this commandment is understanding that everything, we say this all the time, that everything that we have is a gift. The breath that you just took into your lungs in that last second is because God is gracious to you at this very moment. He is giving us gifts constantly. But just like we looked at last week and just like with sexuality, when sin enters into the picture, it takes a good thing and it begins to twist that thing. So instead of this stewardship being our dignity, it starts to become our definition. And so instead of being stewards of his riches, we start to take those gifts that he gives us to provide for us, and they actually begin to be the things that control us. That we take the gifts that he's given and we start to say, well, these things are mine, and actually the more of them that I have, the better my life will be, and the more that I can actually control my future. And it becomes the place that we maybe even start to um, define sort of our or- like it, ourselves in the pecking order of humanity. Well, that, you know, we say things like, well, that person's doing okay. Are they? How do we know? Do we know that because they have a nice car or they live in a good neighborhood? Does that mean that they're okay? Does that mean that they've simply done well for themselves? Is that God's measure for what it means for us to be okay? And in this sense, we come to find that that stealing in, in all of its various forms is, I think, simply this. It's simply taking the responsibility of stewarding God's gift for his distribution to the world and hoarding that gift or taking that gift from somebody else because we are afraid, because we don't trust him, because we're fearful about what tomorrow will bring and we think that he's impotent. We don't think that he can do what we ask him to do. We don't want him to be sovereign over our lives. And so we hoard the gift. We steal the gift from other people. We accumulate more and more. We become like the man in the parable who builds bigger barns, right? I mean, take, take this just for an example. In the last, I mean, I'm sure studies have been done on this, but it's just common sense. If you look at houses in America over the last hundred years, the way that they have grown is astounding. And so, like, we live in a house that was built in the 40s, and you go into the bedroom and open the closet, and you're like, who lived here in the 40s? Did they own nothing? And so, like, we're part of this. We built a bigger closet in our bedroom because we have accumulated more and more stuff. And we're all, we're all cognizant of that to some degree, but we also really... Um, we wade in those waters every day. So we kind of feel like the more and the more and the more that I have, it's somehow defining my existence. And so then there's somebody who comes along like Marie Kondo, right? And you have to like touch everything to see if it sparks joy. And it's really interesting because right now um, thrift stores are going crazy. So if you're a thrifter, it's the time to go thrifting because everyone started purging and getting rid of their stuff. And there's something in us that knows even as we 
um, get rid of our things, there's this deep fear to let go of our stuff, to, to, to watch it leave our house, to be afraid that we may not have as, as much as we think we need to live at the level that we want to live at. So how is it that we who are given the dignity of being stewards of his riches um, actually become people who steal? If possessions define, if they begin to define or secure our lives, then the temptation is naturally going to arise to either hoard or to take. Let me say that again. So if our possessions and our money and our wealth, if they begin to become something, if they become elevated to a place in their life which they were never intended to fulfill, if they start to define our existence or secure tomorrow for us, then the temptation is naturally going to arise for us to hoard or to take. We don't just wake up one morning and decide to be a criminal, just like we don't wake up one morning and decide that we're going to be an adulterer. We have already made possessions something that we trust, and so we, we gradually begin to become numb to the process of stealing because it actually benefits the one that we love the most, ourselves. And so I know that what most of us may be thinking at this point is going like, you know, I don't, I mean, maybe in the other commandments that have come before, I've had this kind of feeling, like, I'm not sure if this is something I really struggle with, um, but then as we talked about it more, you started to kind of think, well, maybe it is more than I originally thought. Um, but we come to this one, and there was a study done a while back um, on American evangelicals, and they were asked the question, do you think you're guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment? And 90% of them said no. And so we have to ask you know, ourself maybe a question like this. If your sort of level of lifestyle, if your level of comfort was dramatically challenged, do you think that you would be tempted to cut some corners in order to get back to that level? I think that we're not only vulnerable to breaking this commandment, I think that we're all guilty of it. And so let me, let me show you for a minute what I mean. And there's, because there's two, I think there's two basic ways that we can be guilty of stealing. And the first one is really simple, and I won't take a lot of time on it, because we can be guilty of stealing simply by taking what belongs to somebody else. You already knew that, right? This is the most obvious category. But we might be guilty of taking what belongs to somebody else because we are involved um, in systems that we willingly participate in. And we know that that system might actually be taking from somebody else in order to um, make us a little richer, maybe to secure our, our position in society a little bit more, that we might be prone more to, to, to steal along the, lo along the lines of maybe white-collar type of crime. When you think about the economic crisis of a little over a decade ago, and it was basically the result of acceptable stealing on a massive level, right? That subprime loans were, were handed out like candy to toddlers because lenders were greedy and borrowers wanted what they wanted at that moment. And there was a vicious cycle taking place that eventually melted down. It eventually imploded. 
Or you might think about how much money, um, and there has been studies that you could look up on this as well, how much money is stolen every year through employees abusing their expense accounts. Ouch, right? How much money is stolen every year by employees abusing their expense accounts? It's always tempting for us to fudge the numbers a little bit, to make them in our favor. But I think that most of us in this room are probably not as tempted to outright steal by taking from something from someone else. I think that where we probably struggle most is that we steal actually by withholding what we've been given. How do we do that? I want to think about a few different areas that we might withhold, rem- remembering the fact that God has given us everything that we have, including our intelligence, including the giftedness that we have, including the ability to, to, um, to have an education, including maybe the families that we've been born, born into, that all of this is th- are things that he has given us and he continues to secure in our lives and provide. And so think broadly for a minute. Think about your work or think about your career. And when we're selfish with the gifts that God has given us, when we only want to use them for our own benefit, it's actually a form of stealing. Now, that sounds weird to us because it's something that we've been trained to do from the day maybe we were really young, is study hard, get a good education, make sure you, you know, cross all your T's and dot all your I's so that you can get into the right school, so that you can get into the right grad school, so that eventually you can get into the right neighborhood, so that you don't have to worry. And whether or not that was directly said to many of us growing up, it is what we heard. I worked on a college campus for 12 years, and um, that that was the message that was ingrained in many of their heads. And they were terrified that it wasn't going to work out the way that they wanted it to work out. But what you do in your life is not simply about securing your own comfort and lifestyle. Jesus said to his followers, I want you to take up your cross and come after me. That what we, the gifts that we've been given are, are really there to serve two purposes, is that they're there to glorify God, to enjoy him forever, and they are there for, for us to love our neighbor as ourself. And when we think about our career only in terms of what it gets for me, it is a form of stealing. But maybe we could also think about our careers in the sense that many of us might steal because we just simply waste time. I mean, and this one's going to feel a little uncomfortable for a second, but we, we might be physically present. We might actually show up at the office. We might technically do what we've been asked, what we were asked to do, but we're like, we're like George Costanza in Seinfeld. I know it's an old show, uh, but it's, it's still worth an illustration who just sits in his office kind of like not doing anything and then when somebody walks by he like it's like acts like he's sweating and he's super busy it's a form of stealing it's a form of 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 taking something from our employer but on the other side of that many of us might be bosses and when we don't treat our employees generously when we don't pay them 
wages that they deserve to be paid because we know if we skimp a little bit here, the bottom line is going to look better over here. That's also a form of stealing in order to benefit ourselves. So we can do this broadly, kind of with, with our work, with, our, with the gifts that God has given us. Not thinking about them um, creatively enough. Not thinking about how even the things that I might have been called to do in my job might produce um, flourishing in the world. And how can I bring that about? Will gave an announcement last week about um, the Leaf Institute in town and the discussions they're having about how does my business actually um, help contribute to making to, to the common good of Greenville. That's something that we should all be thinking about. But we can also steal by withholding, and this is something we do talk about a lot, I won't spend a lot of time here, by, by simply withholding from those who are in need. By withholding from, from those who are in need. And so, you know, think about the words of Jesus that are incredibly um, disturbing to us when he says them. But he doesn't caveat them, and he doesn't... Um, explain them away, but in Luke chapter 6, he simply says, give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. That's a hard saying. And why would Jesus say that? Because Jesus knows that everything that you have has been given to you by him, and so to freely give only makes sense in his economy. And we might argue, well, I worked hard for that, and so I deserve to keep it. And I think Jesus is really challenging that by saying, where did you get your brain, and where did you get your health, and where did you get your skills? They were all gifted to you by me. Everything you have, you only have by his grace. Now, any of you who have um, young children, especially maybe around like toddler age, or even if you've babysat young children and you decide one evening, like, let's go out to dinner, and you go out to dinner, and you order, they, they order their, their, you know, kid's platter, and you're looking at, you know, your salad, and you're thinking that their french fries look pretty good, and so you reach over to take one of their fries, and they slap your hand away, and they say, mine! And you realize, like, a nice parent would have asked before just taking it, but you also have to laugh to yourself because you're thinking, did you drive here? Did you pay for that food? In what sense is that food yours? That food is actually mine. But from the earliest age, and so parents, take the fries. Uh, From the earliest age, we have this idea of like, this now is mine. And don't you dare come near it. But lastly, we withhold and we steal by withholding from God himself. That we, you know, there's a, There's a part in Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, where God actually accuses his people of stealing from him. And they're kind of baffled by that. And even if I've just said everything belongs to him anyway, how could I possibly steal from him? And this is his answer. They said, how have we robbed you? And he says that you have robbed me in your tithes and your contributions. See, this was a primarily agrarian society, and so they would take the first 10% of their harvest, what was called the first fruits, and they would offer those back to God. The very best of what they produced, they would 
um, not wait to see if there was anything left over, but they would take the very first fruits and they would offer those up to God, but they had stopped doing that. And so God says back to them, he says, put me to the test and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. That he is saying that even your giving to me in some ways serves as a test for what you actually trust in. Give it to me and see if I won't provide for you. The one who took on flesh and came and dwelt among you, he humiliated himself for you. Do you think that I'm not going to give you what you need? And so, you know, we, I, I think we do talk about money in the church a lot. We don't talk um, hardly ever from up front about you giving money to the church. We don't pass a plate. We have a little box up here in the front that's sometimes hard, it's sometimes hard to find. Some people say, like, I wanted to give, where do I do that? So we don't talk about it a lot, but we do need to hear that if we are members or regular attenders of the church and we don't give to the church, that God views that as stealing from him. That he wants your gifts to go towards benefiting the work, the local church that you're involved in, which is seen so beautifully, in, as, as Luke tells us, in Acts, in the early church, as the Spirit has come upon them, and they are all gathering together, and, and they are all repenting and believing and um, preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And what happens is they form a community where it just becomes natural for them to share what they have with one another. Listen to what Luke says. He says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was drip distributed to each as any had need. You've maybe heard those verses before or read them before, but how astounding they are. That, that as the Spirit moved upon this group, of who had recent, many of whom had recently been converted, that they actually went out and sold land so that they might come and lay it at the apostles' feet so that it might be distributed so that nobody would be in need among them. If you go on to read in the next chapter, the very next passage in Acts chapter 5, um, if you've never read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, go read it this afternoon. Because there was this couple who decided to withhold and they hid um, their offering. And they drop dead as a result. It's horrifying. But I think that God, what God is telling the early church, he's saying, if you can't trust me with, with your possessions, with your money, do you really believe in me? And so this new society that Jesus has formed, is, it, it, it only makes sense for it to be radically generous. In the passage I read from Ephesians, Paul says, if you're stealing, it's really simple. Stop. 
and instead go and work. And we think, well, that's good advice so that you could work so that nobody else will have to worry about you and you can take care of yourself. That's not his logic, though. If you steal, stop and get to work. Why? So that you will have something to give to those who are in need. That is not the way many of us think. I need a job, and I need to keep working, and I need to make money so that I will have something to give to those who are in need. And what Paul is essentially saying is this. You haven't really stopped being a thief until you've become generous. You haven't stopped being a thief until you become generous. I love the story of Zacchaeus. And it's kind of, it's turned into a sort of like a kid's story. It's not really a kid's story, just because he was a wee little man. Um, This is a story for adults, that Zacchaeus, he was a white-collar criminal. And everyone knew it. And he was one of the most hated men. Because he was walking around in his nice designer suit, and what everyone else knew is that he he was getting fat and happy and rich, because he was skimming off of, he was overtaxing them, he was taking, he was lying in his own pockets, and everyone knew it, and he was hated. And then Zacchaeus meets Jesus, or rather Jesus points to Zacchaeus and says, I want to come home with you, which is astounding in and of itself. And when Zacchaeus meets Jesus, what happens? He doesn't care about that anymore. He doesn't care about his money like he did before. Instead, Zacchaeus says, Half of what I have, I will give now to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone else, I will pay them back fourfold. You know, if we're here this morning and we're more worried about our financial condition than we are our spiritual one, then maybe the thief we should be most concerned about is ourself. Because our money flows effortlessly toward what we treasure the most. And so we can look at the bottom line, and does our bottom line, in fact, support the belief that what we seek first is the kingdom of God? And would an auditor be able to come to the indisputable conclusion that what we value most is what God values most? And so, how do we become generous? I'm going to give you, again, the Sunday school answer. Because it's the same answer that Paul gave the church in Corinth as they had become greedy and he was urging them towards generosity. That Paul simply said, look at Jesus. Don't stop looking at Jesus. Don't stop gazing at Jesus because Paul's argument goes along these lines to make them more generous. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, the king himself, he came and he died between what? Two thieves. Jesus hung on a cross between two thieves. Jesus identified with thieves. Jesus died as a thief. Jesus was punished as a thief so that you do not have to be punished as a thief. Instead, we are now treated like royalty because to him we are. We are members of his kingdom, and we are members of his family. That is the inheritance that he gives to us. And when we see this, when we revel in his grace, 
when we are astounded about the fact that maybe what I just saw in the last few minutes is that I'm more of a thief than I thought I was. Maybe my heart is more greedy than I thought it was. Maybe I love my possessions a little more than I previously thought. What we see is that Jesus, in fact, died for that. And he took the punishment. And so you don't have to wallow in guilt and shame. Instead, what comes from this is that you can now, like Jesus, be generous to those around you. Radical generosity can only come from a heart that has been set free from anxiety. And our hearts can only be set free from anxiety about tomorrow if we know we belong to Jesus and tomorrow belongs to him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see the the depth to which you have given us more than what we would ever need. Father, we pray that you would help us um, to trust you, that you would help us to see that our lives are, are actually securely in your hands, that you really do love us, that you have redeemed us, that you call us your children, that we now belong to you, that we don't have to hoard our stuff that we don't have to hold back, that you've promised to provide for us, that you provide for the flowers of the field and the birds of the air, and how much more that you actually love us. So, Father, I pray that you would release us from anxiety, and that maybe one of the things that combats our anxiety is that we give, that we give in order to press ourselves more deeply into Jesus and his grace. Father, help us to do that. Help us to be known in this city of people who are radically generous. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus invites us.